Okay, so tonight I'd like to continue this process of shaping the heart-mind, or crafting the heart-mind, that we began on Friday evening. And I use the analogy of a skilled craftsperson. So just as a skilled craftsperson becomes intimate with the raw material that they're working with, in the same way we've been developing sati and samadhi, mindfulness and unification of mind, to help us become more intimate with the raw material of our hearts and minds. And once we have some degree of intimacy, when we have, we get to know the material that we're working with better, the next step in the process is to know what tools to shape it with. So just as a skilled craftsperson doesn't only use one tool, likewise the Buddha offered us quite an array of different meditation techniques. So part of the art and the skill of our meditation practice is to understand what the different tools do and which ones to use when. So for example, if we were making a large wooden sculpture, like a, a big one, out, perhaps out of a whole tree trunk. In the beginning of that process, we might use something as relatively gross as a chainsaw to start to get it roughly into the shape that we want. And then when it was roughly in the shape and the size that we want, we start to use maybe a, a hand axe and then chisels of different sizes becoming more and more refined until eventually we put the tools away completely and we start to use perhaps different grades of sandpaper, starting with very coarse, then more refined. And then eventually we might use linseed oil or beeswax to polish the surface of the timber and bring out the luster of its grain. So over the course of this retreat so far, Julie and I have been focusing on the meditation tools found in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And these are extremely useful tools. And in terms of developing the kind of holistic path of practice that's encouraged in the Noble Eightfold Path, this evening I wanted to bring in a complementary set of tools or practices, namely the four Brahma-Vihara meditations, which are four meditation practices that very directly cultivate four skillful heart qualities, kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, appreciative joy or mudita, and equanimity or upeka. And together, these four are known as the Brahma-Vihara, which is yet another Pali word that's quite difficult to translate into English because the word Brahma refers to a kind of god that was worshipped by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. So we don't really have any equivalent of Brahma in our own culture today. So it's sometimes translated as heaven instead, as in heavenly realms. And then the last part of that word, vihara, means dwelling place. So Brahma-vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of Brahma. 
but it's more usually translated as things like divine abodes or sublime abidings or heavenly realms or boundless states. And what I'd like to highlight in each of these translations is the aspect of Vihara as home. Because when our hearts and minds are not assailed by reactivity to dukkha, when they're not lost in stress, distress, difficulty, the Brahma-Vihara are where we naturally abide or dwell. There's a sense of ease there, just as there is in our physical homes. That Vihara is a place or a state where we can feel relaxed, comfortable, and more who we truly are. So the second aspect of the term Brahma-Vihara that I'd like to highlight is the quality of boundlessness. Sometimes these four qualities are referred to as the four immeasurables because they can be cultivated so completely that they become unlimited, boundless, completely unconditional. In other words, extended equally to all beings everywhere. No strings attached, no preference. So just to acknowledge that's the ultimate extension, that's a very high bar. And before it might start to reinforce any pre-existing condition of inadequacy, keep in mind that these are practices, they're training, and we start where we are. And we need to have the patience to let them develop gradually through this process of regularly training, cultivating them, and always supported by and interwoven with our insight practice. So before I go into the, each of the practices in a little bit more detail, I'd like to zoom out a bit and give some context to talk about how kindness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity do fit with our insight or vipassana practice. Because generally speaking, they're not as well known as insight practice. They're not as commonly taught. And even if they are taught, at least in the context of an insight retreat, Often the focus is just on the first one, metta or kindness, and the other three often are just mentioned in passing. And before we go any further, just a quick confession. So even though these days I put a lot of emphasis on the Brahma Vihara in my own practice and in what I teach, this wasn't always the case. As some of you have heard me say, Early on, it would be pretty accurate to say that I loathed these practices. Or perhaps more accurately, I loathed, I loathed the idea of them because I didn't even do them. It was just the idea was so off-putting. I couldn't imagine myself engaging with them. Now, we don't have time to go into all the twists and turns of how I actually and eventually ended up being a convert but just to acknowledge my original aversion to these practices, in case any of you might have a similar relationship to them. And just to gently encourage you, if that's the case, to see if you might find some willingness to play with them from time to time. Again, in the service of developing this holistic 
path that's described in the Noble Eightfold Path. So in the Buddha's teachings as a whole, there is a strong emphasis on balance. And one way this is expressed is in terms of always orienting to what's known as the middle way. So it's said that after the Buddha attained Nibbana or awakening, complete freedom of heart and mind, he gave a teaching where he explained this middle way as being about not falling into extremes. On the one hand, the extreme, the habit of self-indulgence. And on the other hand, the other extreme, the habit of self-mortification or self-punishment. Now, I think most of us are probably familiar with the self-indulgence side of that pair, the tendency to take refuge, false refuge, in sense pleasures, often out of unconscious reactivity to some type of dukkha. So commonly we put a lot of effort into chasing after pleasant experiences, again manipulating the world out there to try and make ourselves happy which, as most of you know, is only ever partly successful, temporarily successful, because of the universal characteristic of anicca, or impermanence. Because of that, before too long, the sense pleasure disappears, and then we're compelled to find the next hit of sense pleasure, and the next, and the next, the next thing that we unconsciously believe is going to really do it for us. And the problem with this approach is that it makes us dependent on external conditions being a certain way in order for us to be happy. So that's one misguided strategy for dealing with dukkha. The opposite but equally misguided approach is self-mortification. So in the Buddha's teaching on the Middle Way, this originally referred to the ascetic practices that were common in his time. It seemed back then that a lot of the spiritual practices involved different forms of more or less torturing the body. For example, taking vows to never sit down or never lie down or to sleep only on a bed of nails or to severely restrict how much food one ate. And fortunately, those aren't part of our culture anymore. But uh, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, makes the point that what is quite common is a kind of psychological self-torture. And there seems to be something in our social, our societal conditioning these days that makes very many people very hard on themselves. And there are often strong patterns tendencies of feeling of inadequacy, unworthiness, self-criticism, even self-loathing. So if that's true for us, we want to consciously pay attention to and cultivate skillful mind states as the antidote, again in the service of finding balance, the balance of the middle way, the balance between self-indulgence and psychological self-mortification on the other. So again, in terms of metaphors of balance, there's one metaphor that's uh, sometimes used to describe the Buddha's teachings. 
and it's a metaphor I've found very helpful in my own practice, the image of the two wings to awakening, these two wings being wisdom and compassion. And with that metaphor, we can very directly get a sense that we need both wings to be equally well-developed if we're going to fly. But in my own practice, and also many of the students I work with, there's traditionally been more emphasis on the wisdom wing than the compassion wing. So I'll go into them in a little more detail soon, but just a couple of working definitions. Wisdom, in this context, is another term for insight, for clear seeing, for understanding the deepest truths of our human experience. Compassion is the capacity to turn towards what's difficult, towards dukkha, to meet our own and others' challenges with kindness and courage. And in this context, I use compassion as a kind of an umbrella term for all skillful states of heart and mind, including the other three Brahma-Vihara. So in the bigger picture of our practice, it can be helpful from time to time to check how is the balance between wisdom and compassion. And when I've done this in my own practice, sometimes with hindsight, I can recognize phases where one or the other of these two wings got too far developed ahead of the other. And when I was in that imbalance, it was uncomfortable, it was unsettling, it was discouraging, until I eventually realized what had happened and was able to take steps to come back to balance by putting more emphasis on the wing that needed more development. Now, perhaps because we're nominally in the insight tradition, it seems to be more common for the insight wing to be developed ahead of the compassion wing. So, for example, one way this might show up is that, especially perhaps towards the beginning of the practice when we're working with more psychological insights, starting to under our psychological patterns more clearly, there are phases where it seems like these show up in vivid technicolor, ultra-high definition, and all of our so-called flaws and problems and habits are really obvious. And there's that painful old joke that self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. So at this point, we might need to bring in a little more compassion. Likewise, as the practice deepens and the insights start to become more along the lines of the three universal characteristics of experience, uh, again, this can be somewhat unsettling. So just to mention them briefly, I touched into them the other day. These three characteristics of all experience are the understanding that everything is impermanent unsatisfactory and empty of a fixed sense of self. And these understandings in many ways are opposite to the way we usually understand our experience. So it can be challenging, unsettling, even disturbing at times to let go of these deeply held beliefs about who we are 
and how the world is. And again, at these times, we might need to consciously turn to the compassion wing for a while to cultivate a more resilient heart-mind that can navigate these challenges with some degree of balance. So those are just a couple of ways that wisdom can get ahead of compassion. Sometimes the opposite is true, and the compassion can get ahead of the wisdom. As we settle into and orient more towards compassion practice, at times we might feel acutely all the suffering in the world, and perhaps particularly in our current global circumstances, and it can feel like we're drowning in it. So again, we might need to turn back to the wisdom wing so that we can find some balance, some equanimity in response to all that suffering. We might need to consciously orient to impermanence and not-self so that we can taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of difficulty. There can also be times when that compassion gets a little ungrounded or off-balance. People suddenly feel very inspired and they might be tempted to leave their jobs and maybe go to India to volunteer in a school or an orphanage. And it's possible that at some time in life that could be the right thing to do if it's done with clear seeing, with wisdom. But if it's done out of some kind of um, impulsiveness or an ungrounded compassion, it might not be so helpful. So we need to keep checking if the both wings are equally developed. Otherwise, we might find ourselves flying around in circles. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings and learning how to balance them is another aspect of the art of this practice. Balance is also woven into the Brahmavihara practices themselves. And that's an aspect of the practices that I'd like to highlight tonight. Because again, not only are these four not taught so much, when they are taught, there tends to be a lot more emphasis on the first one, metta or kindness. And the other three are more or less glossed over. And one of the problems is that if we just develop one, we don't get the full strength of what together they have to offer. The other downside of emphasizing metta so much is that people can develop the mistaken belief that metta is supposed to be our default response to every circumstance in our life. But actually wisdom shows us that there are some circumstances where metta is not the most appropriate response. Just as a simple example, sometimes people will say things like, I've been in a custody battle with my ex for five years now and I'm trying to send them meta, but it's just not working. And often, if that's brought to me, I'll say, have you also been working with compassion for yourself for that very difficult, painful situation? And usually the response is one of sort of blankness or even horror the idea of offering compassion to oneself. 
So we need all four of these practices working together to strengthen each other and to help them not get unbalanced. So just as an overview of how all four of them work together, I'd like to share a piece of writing by two English Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. Some of you are familiar with this, but I appreciate how clearly it lays out what the four Brahmaviharas are, how they're different flavors of love, and how they work together to keep each other in balance. So metta, or kindness, is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna, or compassion, brings the heart back into balance. Karuna, the love that responds, is an antidote to cruelty. It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita, the love that celebrates, is an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, or equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, you might have noticed how each of the qualities is used to overcome an unhelpful mind state and then to balance out the other qualities too. And so if each quality, each quality slides naturally into the next one, and in the end we return again to metta, because if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, it's metta that brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle, and we work through each of these qualities over and over again, a spiraling journey around and through, creating a beautiful force field of unconditional love, always underpinned by and woven through with wisdom. So I'd like to just briefly touch into the relationship between Brahma-Vihara practice and insight again now. So we mentioned, I mentioned just before that the purpose of insight is to see more and more deeply into these three universal characteristics. Everything constantly changing, impermanent, and nature. Because of its impermanence, unsatisfactory, unreliable, dukkha. And we ourselves are part of this changing, impermanent flow. Without a stable, fixed self at the center, to whom it's all happening. This is anatta. And as our insight practice deepens, we begin to notice the suffering that comes 
when we live out of alignment with those truths of the three characteristics. So we get hurt when we try to prevent things or people or ourselves from changing. We get hurt when we try to find lasting happiness in impermanent experiences. And we get hurt when we try to shore up a solid identity as a defense against all of that change. So to put that in traditional Buddhist terms, those are all different forms of the craving or the clinging that we've been exploring. And as I've been emphasizing, the whole of our insight practice is about seeing where and how we get caught in clinging and how to help it release into deeper and deeper states of inner freedom. So a few years ago now, I was doing a six-week retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, led by Joseph Goldstein and Caroline Jones, one of the teachers who wrote that piece I just shared with you. And Joseph and Caroline were offering these two complementary approaches to practice. Joseph was focusing on anatta, or not-self, which is also sometimes referred to as emptiness. And Caroline was focusing on these four, Brahma-Vihara. And during the retreat at that time, in one of the, I was in a phase where I was exploring this process of letting go, of releasing more and more closely. So really noticing wherever, whenever I was holding on, clinging, grasping, craving, and inviting that clinging to release. And because of the special conditions, perhaps, some momentum did develop. And for a while, there was a phase where that clinging just did keep releasing. And in the midst of that, at one point, a little flicker of doubt showed up. And a question came into my mind. But if I just keep letting go and letting go and letting go... What will that leave? And in that moment, the spontaneous reply was love. And intuitively, this made sense to me in a whole new way. So anatta, or not-self, is not about becoming a nobody, as we might unconsciously fear. Instead, when we can reduce the amount of space taken up in our psyche by all that habitual self-referencing and self-constructing, there's literally more room in the heart and the mind for these Brahma-Vihara qualities to strengthen and grow. So cultivating the understanding of anatta supports the Brahma-Viharas. And the opposite is also true. The more actively we cultivate these qualities of kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, they open up space in the heart-mind and help free us from the prison of self-centeredness. So it's a two-way process. Anatta makes space for the Brahma-Vihara and the Brahma-Vihara open up the experience of anatta. When the word anatta is translated as not-self, or sometimes as emptiness, though, to some people it can sound challenging 
bleak, cold, well, empty. But if we understand it as a gradual process of emptying ourselves of self-referencing, it can start to make more sense. Because the sense of self that seems so necessary for our survival, when we see it with insight, we understand it's also a source of immense discomfort and suffering. And even in the English language, we can get some sense of that if we think of words that are commonly associated with the word self. So I got curious about this a few years ago, and I looked in an online dictionary for what sort of words are prefaced by self. And it was actually a very long list. So here's just a few examples. Self-absorbed. Self-centered. Self-conscious. Self-important. Self-pitying. Self-referencing. Self-righteous. Self-satisfied. Self-serving. And so on. There's actually pages of these. But even as you heard that list, might, you might have noticed if there was any response in your own being. If it was anything like mine, might have been a slight sense of contraction or tensing or narrowing. By contrast, when we practice the Brahma Vihara and we are more able to develop them into that sense of openness and freedom, and that arises because we're not referring everything back to a small sense of me at the center of the universe. And in that process, the distinction between ourselves and others starts to dissolve. We start to experience more of a reciprocal flow of kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And this reciprocal flow depends on our capacity to, to open to and receive these qualities as well as to offer them out. And this is a bit different from the way the Brahmaviharas are often taught. So with the traditional way of doing these practices, as many of you know, we usually bring to mind a particular person in our lives, categorized perhaps as a benefactor or a good friend, a neutral person, then a difficult person, and we silently offer phrases that evoke kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity towards that person. But one of the disadvantages of this method is it can feel like we somehow have to spontaneously conjure up or even manufacture a state of kindness. And then that effort to keep offering it to someone else can make it feel a bit forced or one-sided. And even though we might be instructed to include ourselves in the practice, as I mentioned earlier, many people really struggle to offer kindness to themselves. So they tend to focus on offering it to others instead. So if that's been true for you, if some of the more traditional ways of doing metta haven't worked so well for you, then again, in this spirit of exploring and enjoying, I encourage you to play around 
find your own way in, your own method. Because one of the aspects of the Brahma Viharas that I really appreciate is that we can be creative with them because it's pretty hard to accidentally generate too much metta. I'd love to be proved wrong. So give it a go. So back on that retreat at the Forest Refuge a few years ago, after I'd felt this connection between emptiness and love, I started to play with the traditional form of the Brahma Vihara practices and metta particularly and open it into more of an inquiry practice or inquiry practice as they say in the US one that directly infused insight into the metta through a process of investigation of asking questions and listening intuitively to the answer while staying present and noticing how this felt in my body as opposed to my intellect And the other aspect of the practice that I played with back then was to put as much emphasis on the receiving of metta as the giving of it. Because when I did this, it became more of a reciprocal flow that in my experience was easier to maintain, to sustain. So I'll say a little bit more about how this practice developed and then I'd like to give it a try after the talk, just for 15 minutes or so, not long. So the first stage of the practice is what I think of as the receiving stage, where we try to bring to mind a time when we have received these Brahma-Vihara qualities from others. For some people, there might be a sense of having received them from the Buddha himself. As we mentioned earlier in the retreat, you could say that none of us would be here on this retreat if we hadn't been able to receive his teachings and have a direct experience of the benefit of them. For some people, though, the Buddha is a bit of a remote figure, so if that's true for you, you might think of a living being who perhaps exemplifies these qualities for you, perhaps His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or Thich Nhat Hanh, or Pema Chodron, or perhaps someone you know personally, one of your own teachers or a mentor or a kind relative or a friend. So just someone who you feel to have received kindness from. And when you bring that to mind to see if you can get a felt sense of that meta energy and really allow it in fully into your body, into your heart-mind. And as you let in that metta, what I discovered in my own practice as I tried to really almost soak it up like a sponge, I started to feel shifts in my body as if that energy of kindness was actually physically loosening some knots, some obstacles in my own being. And at times I could feel that this metta that I was receiving was beginning to dissolve some tinge of unworthiness or a flutter of anxiety or soften a sense of hurt. So as we try to receive this metta fully into the body, 
it's possible that you might notice a physical sense of some blockage softening, releasing. And you might see if you can name to yourself what is being released. So this is the second stage of the practice to tune in and notice what does receiving matter allow me to release? What obstacles can soften? And then the third stage is to reciprocate that energy in some way, to offer it back. So just as we may have benefited from receiving that matter, being able to release some dukkha, what might we then offer back, perhaps to ourselves or to others? So for example, right now, if I think of the metta that I've received from my own teachers over the years, each time I think of that, I can feel just this subtle release in the chest area of a tension that I didn't even know I was carrying. So there's just a very slight sense of expanding and opening. And from that increased sense of ease, there's a willingness and openness to offering that same ease to others. So this is the last stage of the practice, the reciprocating. So we move from receiving to releasing to reciprocating, offering that kindness back. And when I describe that process, I often find my hand sort of doing this shape, which I realized afterwards is like an infinity symbol. And I like that because it brings us back to the reminder of the boundlessness the unconditionality, the infinite quality of these Brahma-viharas when they're developed to their highest form. So that's just a little overview of how this practice might be developed. Let's take a moment of silence before we give it a go. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.